Welcome to Global Dispatches, a podcast for the foreign policy and global development communities and anyone who wants a deeper understanding of what is driving events in the world today. I'm your host, Mark Leon Goldberg, editor of UN Dispatch. Enjoy the show. Pakistan's Prime Minister Imran Khan resigned on April 10th following a no-confidence vote in Parliament. The former cricket star turned politician had served as Prime Minister since 2018. But in recent months, he had increasingly fallen out of favor with Pakistan's powerful military establishment, which has long been a dominant force in Pakistani politics. My guest today, Michael Kugelman, is Senior Associate for South Asia at the Wilson Center. We kick off discussing how Imran Khan leveraged his celebrity as one of the greatest cricket players of all time to a career in politics. We then discuss how he governed as Prime Minister and the circumstances that led to his downfall. Finally, we have an in-depth conversation about how this political transition in Pakistan may impact U.S.-Pakistani relations and regional dynamics between Pakistan, India, and China. I think you'll find this conversation very helpful. I always love speaking with Michael Kugelman. He's been on the show several times now to discuss politics in South Asia. And uh, you'll see at the very end of this conversation, I do sneak in a question about this unprecedented heat wave that is now gripping parts of Pakistan and India. And he gives, I think, a very interesting response to that question. As always, feel free to reach out to me if there are people you'd like me to interview, topics you'd like me to cover. I always love hearing from you. You can hit me up on Twitter at Mark L. Goldberg or Use the contact button on globaldispatchespodcast.com. All right, now here is Michael Kugelman of the Wilson Center. Looking for a trustworthy podcast to bring you unfiltered viewpoints and experiences on global health? Tune into Global Health Matters, the podcast that connects silos and amplifies diverse voices to give you a holistic picture. Each month, Dr. Gary Aslanian from the World Health Organization hosts discussions with guests spanning former ministers of health, award-winning journalists and authors, and frontline public health workers. Join listeners from across 180 countries for an exciting Season 4, launching in June. Global Health Matters is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and YouTube. If you go back to the uh, 1980s and into the uh, early 1990s, uh, Imran Khan was really a household name in the world of cricket. He was one of the world's, not just Pakistan's, but one of the world's greatest cricket stars for sure. And his most famous moment was when he rallied a an injured, hobbled, uh, underdog Pakistani uh, national cricket squad to a World Cup championship victory over heavily favored England uh, in the 1992 World Cup. It was huge. And, uh, you know, the entire country of Pakistan was uh, literally um, exuberant for, for days and days. So that's really, I think, was the, the pinnacle of his fame as a cricket star. But, yeah, he was a really big deal for a long time. And I have to imagine there is potent symbolic weight to the fact that Pakistan defeated its former colonial masters, England, in that uh, World Cup. 
Oh, absolutely. Uh, you'd better believe it. Uh, and, and not to mention that England simply had a really uh, <clears throat> tremendous, um, indomitable cricket squad. But indeed, if you look at the uh, the history of it, indeed, there's a tremendous amount of pride uh, based in that very fact that uh, I think made Pakistanis even so much so much happier that they that they defeated the uh, the English. So how did one of the greatest cricket players of all time who led Pakistan in this improbable victory over England in the 1992 Cricket World Cup enter into politics? Yes, yeah, so it was actually very soon after Imran Khan retired from cricket, very soon after he decided to launch his political career. So he launched his his political party, uh, Pakistan Tehriki and Saf, which, is, which really translates to the Pakistan Justice Party, he launched it in 1996. And he was already thinking about a political career, I think, during the last few years of his, of his, cricket, uh, of his cricket career. One thing that he started to do was become a big philanthropist. And he, he really emphasized charitable causes. And he uh, developed this large cancer hospital in Pakistan in honor of his mother, uh, and I think that was his way of projecting himself as so different from so much of the Pakistani political class, which uh, was uh, dynastic, corrupt, very wealthy, not given to huge displays of philanthropy. So that was a really big deal. Um, but then, indeed, in 96, he formed the, his political party. And the big issue um, that uh, that it revolved around uh, and it continued to be the case up to the present day was the issue of corruption. Uh, Imran Khan, from his very earliest days as a political figure, depicted himself as a champion of anti-corruption. Um, and, you know, he also wanted to really present a third way, so to speak, or actually, I guess, a second way. He wanted to pr- project himself and his party as different from the longstanding mainstream political parties in Pakistan. And there were only two of them that had ruled Pakistan for its entire history when Pakistan was not run by the military. And again, the idea was to project himself as non-dynastic and non-corrupt. And that really helped him uh, generate a lot of mass appeal uh, in the 90s. It took him a while, of course, until he would actually become, uh, when, until, he would be, until he would lead a government. But he used that image, that projection as a way to build uh, national appeal in the years that followed. And I suppose, you know, when you have this independent kind of celebrity uh, and you're not caught up in like the politics of the past and you're very much like an outsider, it's easy to project oneself as being not tainted by the corruption of the sort of political establishment. Yeah, that, that's correct. That's correct. Indeed. I mean, he really projected himself as that type of populist figure, this outsider that was coming in to, uh, to make big changes and, and uh, pass through major reforms. But you know, of course, at the same time, we have to acknowledge that Imran Khan was someone who, who had made a lot of money and become very wealthy from his cricket career. He had very deep attachments to the West and in particular Great Britain, where he had spent a lot of time during his cricket career. So, and he was a big part of the celebrity culture in the, in, in the UK for a while. So it's not like he was a complete maverick and a complete outsider, but certainly in the context of Pakistani uh, mainstream politics, he was very different. He was definitely uh, very different from what had happened, from what we had seen in the, in the decades leading to his emergence in politics. So I, I take it his party must have been something of uh, like a, a sort of permanent minority party for a long time, because, you know, you said he, he started his party in 1996. He wasn't prime minister until ni- until 2018. How is it that he emerged after so many years in, I guess, like the political wilderness to become prime minister in 2018? Yeah, it was definitely a long, hard road. And uh, you know, the PTI, his party, uh, didn't really even have any type of presence in the parliament, in the national parliament for quite some time. 
Uh, and keep in mind that the political state of play uh, was very um, challenging for him to penetrate for quite some time, uh, just a few years after he formed his political party, the military came back to take power in 1999, and you had military rule until 2008. So that made democracy very difficult. But it is notable that um, Imran Khan actually joined the very large pro-democracy movements uh, that broke out 2007-2008 uh, against the rule of military dictator Pervez Musharraf. And it's funny because we hear so often, or we've heard in recent years, that Imran Khan was the favorite son of the military and he became prime minister because of the military support. Well, when he was first starting out, uh, he was actually opposed to, to military rule in a big way. But then when he, what, what he started to do is after civilian rule returned in 2008, uh, he became to he, he began to focus a lot more on trying to develop a larger base, and this is when he really tried to. Well, first of all, he did several things. Uh, first of all, he really um, leveraged very uh, adeptly, very strategically, this grievance um, harbored by a pretty significant dem voting demographic in, in demographic in Pakistan. That being a conservative, young, middle class, urban group of folks that were repulsed by corruption in the in the political class. And he leveraged that. That had been his big calling card for so long, anti-corruption. So that really helped him become a bigger political figure uh, as we got into the into the 2000s, into the late 2000s. And then uh, you know the 2013 election, he he did not win it, but he used the the 2013 election to take aim at the government, which he described as incredibly corrupt, and he claimed that it had it had won the election through fraud. He became a very adept opposition figure by galvanizing large crowds on the streets in major cities, including in Islamabad. That raised his stature even more. Then the final thing that he did, and this is really what allowed him to become prime minister in 2018 is he very slowly cultivated a better relationship with the military. And as you know, in Pakistan, if you're a civilian politician and you want to attain the highest place in that uh, political class, that of prime minister, you need to be in good terms with the military. So he improved his relations with the military. And then you had a situation in, in the months leading up to the 2018 election where a number of things happened that suggested that the military may have been indirectly helping Imran Khan to win election. Uh, for instance, you had a number of arrests of uh, members of the Pakistan Muslim League Party, which at the time was the ruling party, uh, against Imran Khan. You had TV channels that suddenly went off the air, um, TV channels that were airing coverage of, of candidates opposed to Imran Khan, and things like that. Um, so Imran Khan won the 2018 election, thanks to the the appeal that he, the, the, the mass following that he had, but at the same time, many experts, including myself, believe that he was aided by these pre-election engineering efforts by the Pakistani military um, to put Imran Khan in power. At that time, the Pakistani military was very unhappy with the party that had been in power. It had sparred with the military a lot. And I think the military saw Imran Khan as that figure that could be a very useful prime minister um, for uh, for the military's cause, which we can go into. Yeah, yeah. So having become prime minister in 2018 uh, with, as you said, the support of the military and you know a degree of popular support as well, how did he rule? What were characteristics of you know his time as prime minister? So he came in with uh, very lofty goals and very high ambitions. Again, he was projecting himself as this 
populist maverick outsider that wanted to do big and better things. So he made all kinds of promises that there was no way he could keep. So, you know, he talked about wanting to create this new Islamic welfare state in Pakistan that would involve huge increases in social welfare and spending to help the poor. Uh, Pakistan's economy didn't allow that, uh, quite frankly. He also vowed to get rid of all corruption within the political class within 90 days out of taking office. That wasn't going to happen either, given the structural presence of corruption in the political class. Um, but he, you know, he tried to he tried to follow through on those promises initially. It was, became very clear soon it wasn't going to work out. Uh, another thing that stands out from his his years in power is that he never really had any consistent, clear, principled positions. He made a lot of U-turns. He promised to do one thing. He later reneged on that promise. But I think what what stands out the most, and this is what in the end uh, contributed to his downfall, is that he was he really acted like an opposition figure, even when he was prime minister. He really did not reach out across the aisle to work with the opposition. He harassed them. He called them names. He accused them of being frauds and corrupts. Um, You know, he, he alienated members of his own party for some of the things he did. So in the end, he, he wasn't really to make types of compromises and concessions that are necessary in a parliamentary democracy, and particularly for Imran Khan, who was leading what was a rather fractious coalition. I mean, when his, when he, when his party won the election in 2018, it was by a pretty narrow margin. So he didn't have much of a margin for error. He, ha- he really had to make concessions and work with, with the opposition and be more accommodationist, but he wasn't. Um, and that was, that's really what stands out uh, in retrospect about his uh, nearly four years in power. And presumably, at some point, he must have fallen out of favor with the military and the security services, right? Yeah, that's correct. So indeed, for the first few years that he was in power, he did have uh, quite good relations with the military from the army chief on down. And you know, it's striking many, many analysts, uh, including me, uh, soon after he was elected, question whether he would be able to maintain good relations with the military because his personality doesn't lend itself to working well with the military. He's stubborn, he's defiant, he's got strong views, he does not like to defer to, to higher authorities. And yet the military wants exactly that. It wants civilian prime ministers to be willing to be malleable and to defer to the army. But I think for the first few years that he was in power, Imran Khan had really wanted to become prime minister for so long since he formed his party in 1996. So he was willing to defer. But then things finally changed at a key moment in November of last year when Imran Khan uh, disagreed with uh, the decision of the army chief about who the next spy chief would be, the next chief of Pakistan's preeminent spy service, the ISI, as it's known. So that is what finally caused his relationship with the army chief, General Bajwa, to take a major tumble. Related to that is that the, the person who had been the spy chief up to that point, a guy named Faiz Hamid, had been a close ally of Imran Khan. They got along very well. And the ISI chief in Pakistan is almost as powerful as the army chief. So that ISI chief who was close to Imran Khan, he moved on to another position. He became a corps commander uh, outside of Islamabad. So Imran Khan, basically, he lost the support of the army chief, and he also lost a key ally in the security establishment who moved on. The opposition capitalized on that, knowing that it happened. That's what prompted the, the opposition to put together this no-confidence vote, justifying it on the fact that Imran Khan had failed to address the, the economic crisis in Pakistan, which was true to an extent. But really, it was the fact, that dynamic, that, that it, what had happened to Imran Khan with the army chief 
and with the spy chief. And that really created a situation where I think that the army chief, uh, perhaps indirectly, but uh, played a role in allowing this no-confidence vote to move forward. And of course, it's a no-confidence vote that Imran Khan failed to survive. And you know, then Khan tried some perhaps extra constitutional machinations to cling to power, uh, but was unsuccessful. Is that right? Yeah, that's correct. It got really crazy uh, in the sense that Imran Khan basically came up with this uh, this argument that the no confidence vote um, had been put together by the opposition with the collusion of the U.S. government and that the Biden administration was working with the opposition to try to get Khan kicked out of power. So Khan then said that for that reason, the no confidence uh, motion was illegitimate and not credible and that therefore there was no way there could be a vote for it on it. And if there was, you know, you'd be caving to, to this illegitimate process. So uh, the Supreme Court weighed in, uh, the, you know, the, the opposition obviously uh, objected and brought the, this case to the Supreme Court. The Supreme Court said, no, that's not the case at all. Um, you know, procedurally, you can't do that because in, in Pakistan, you know, the Constitution says that when a, a, a um, no confidence motion has been introduced in Parliament, as it had at this point, uh, you can't you can't cancel the vote. I mean, you have to go through with it. So the Supreme Court said that Imran Khan had acted unconstitutionally, um, and that he and that it ordered that the vote take place after all, which it did, and he lost. And when it happened, that at that point, he did accept the result. So I find it interesting and, and telling that Khan would explicitly cite some sort of American conspiracy to oust him from power as like the reason that he lost, you know, his, his premiership. And it's also interesting. And, and I noted at the time that, you know, it was like the eve of Russia's invasion of Ukraine that Khan paid a visit to, to Moscow, to, to Putin. Um, you know, those I mean, what does both those things suggest to you about how he approached relations with the United States? Yeah, you know, it's interesting that um, uh, Imran Khan actually had fairly good relations with the U.S. until uh, relatively recently. Like that's um, what I thought. That's why I was yeah. kind of surprised at, at those two those two things. Right. I mean, it's during the um, uh, the last few years of the Trump administration. 2000, well, really the latter part of 2018 leading into 2019, 2020, um, uh, the, the U.S.-Pakistan relations were in a good place with Khan in power, mainly because Donald Trump had really wanted to get out of Afghanistan, and he then requested that Imran Khan help bring the Taliban to the table to negotiate with the U.S. government an agreement. And Imran Khan and, and, and Islamabad did that. And that resulted in Imran Khan getting invited to the White House. So, you know, it's easy to forget now. But, um, you know, almost two years ago, uh, Imran Khan uh, sat there in the Oval Office with Donald Trump. Uh, he was he, he was feted on Capitol Hill. He had a pretty successful visit here. Things went downhill, though, when the Biden administration came to power. Imran Khan took it very personally that President Biden did not call him, um, even though there's no reason to think that that Biden would call Imran Khan. I mean, Pakistan is an ally of the U.S., but it's not a close ally. Uh, There's a lot of tensions in the relationship. Uh, And then, you know, I think that um, also the fact that um, Pakistan was not invited to participate in this White House climate summit which was taken as a big snub by Imran Khan. That didn't go off well. Hmm. But then, of course, as you know, what really set off the conspiracy allegations was a private exchange that happened reportedly between a senior U.S. State Department official, Donald Liu, and the and the Pakistani ambassador to the U.S., in which, um, in which Donald Liu said, according to the reportage, 
that, uh, you know, U.S.-Pakistan relations aren't in a good place under Imran Khan and that it would perhaps be better for the relationship if Imran Khan does not survive the no-confidence vote, which at that time was being uh, was was going to soon be introduced. So Imran Khan used that that comment as evidence that the U.S. was actually planning to get rid of Imran Khan, even though one cannot draw that that, that link. But that was the main data point, the prime data point that, that Khan pointed to. Uh, and indeed, it does reflect how U.S.-Pakistan relations in the Khan era had taken a major turn for the worse. Uh, so Shabazz Sharif, the brother of former Prime Minister Nawaz Sharif, is now the Prime Minister of, of Pakistan. What can we expect in terms of bilateral relationships between Pakistan and the United States going forward? I mean, it seems to kind of be a, at a rocky moment when you have the outgoing Prime Minister you know, accusing the United States of orchestrating his downfall. Um what are key elements of Shabazz Sharif's you know, policy priorities towards the United States right now and vice versa? Yeah, so uh, certainly one big change in the U.S.-Pakistan relationship, which will help it, and it's already happened, is that you're not going to have this shrill uh, anti-American rhetoric coming from Islamabad. Imran Khan had always been, has always been a sharp critic of U.S. policy one of the biggest, sharpest Pakistani critics of U.S. policy, going back to the drone war. Uh, Imran Khan once threatened to shoot down American drones uh, if, they're, if he were in power. Uh, but um, and, and Shabazz Sharif, just by nature, his personality, he's much more subdued. He's certainly not as given to anti-American, and I shouldn't say anti-American, but not given to sentiment that's critical of U.S. policy. So already that's changed. So I do think that Shabazz Sharif being in power will provide more space and a better environment for the two governments to explore the possibilities for future partnership. But I think that the Sharif government will have to be careful, right? Because Sharif does not want to play into the very uh, the, the very rhetoric of Imran Khan and his supporters that uh, indicate that you know Sharif is in power only because the U.S. government helped put him there. And if Shabazz Sharif were to very publicly call for better relations with the U.S. and make efforts to improve relations with the U.S., you know that would give ammunition to to Sharif's critics, to Imran Khan and his supporters. So that'll be tricky. Final point on this. You know, the U.S.-Pakistan relationship was going to be in a tough spot no matter who was in power in Pakistan, just because, um, you know, the U.S. uh, competition with China, which is such a key component of U.S. foreign policy, that's that's a problematic given that Pakistan is closely allied with China. So there was only far there was only so far that uh, U.S.-Pakistan relations could go given that Pakistan is essentially tied to the hip with the Chinese. And then the U.S.-India relationship has been growing as well, which has long been problematic for Pakistan. Uh, You also have a Biden administration in office that comprises, including Biden himself, many senior officials who had previously uh, been with the Obama administration at a moment when the U.S.-Pakistan relationship experienced some of its worst crises ever, 2011-2012. So I think that there's still a lot of ill will and mistrust and unhappiness within some many senior figures in the in the Biden administration that would be hesitant to move closer to to Pakistan. So this is to say that we shouldn't expect we shouldn't overstate the changes, much less the improvements that we could see in U.S.-Pakistan relations now that we have a new government. Uh, so I'm glad you brought up China because that was on my list of, of questions for you. I mean, you know, it seems the, the Russian invasion of, of Ukraine sort of 
you know, stalled or hit the pause button, it seems, on what was the growing foreign policy focus of the Biden administration, which is you know, to, to gain allies around the world to counter Chinese influence. And I'm just sort of curious if you can go like a little deeper for me, for the audience, into some of the key elements or the key questions that might drive Shabazz Sharif's approach to China and vice versa in the coming you know, weeks or, or months or years. What can we expect? What are some sort of key issues that will be important in that um, Pakistani-Chinese relationship? Yeah, well, you know, as I said before, uh, China is arguably Pakistan's closest ally. They've been very close for many years, very strong security cooperation and more recently economic cooperation. So you, know, you could talk about how we could see some shifts in foreign policy between Sharif and his predecessor Khan, but on China, there's going to be a lot of continuity. Um, you know, Sharif, like any leader in Pakistan, would value the importance of relations with China. And, uh, you know, he's going to want to pick up where Khan left off, and that's to do whatever's necessary to keep the relationship strong. And I think in the immediate term, uh, Sharif will, will perhaps look to Beijing as a uh, potential um, source of new uh, financial assistance because Pakistan's economic crisis is just really getting out of control at this point. Um, so, so I think we'll I think we'll see that. Um, now, it is notable that the that I think that the Beijing um, had a very good relationship with Shabazz Sharif's political party, and that's because Shabazz Sharif's brother Nawaz Sharif was prime minister when the China-Pakistan Economic Corridor, which is the Pakistan component of, component of the Belt and Road Initiative, was formally launched. Uh, and you know, as I understand it, Beijing had liked working with the Sharifs and the Pakistan Muslim League Party because they didn't ask many questions. Uh, they were very, they were just perfectly happy how commercial cooperation went with China, whereas Imran Khan was very focused on the issue of transparency and concerned about corruption. And indeed, you actually had some senior leaders in the Imran Khan government that publicly expressed concern about Chinese loans coming from CPEC because of concerns that there was too much money coming in, not enough transparency. So that's pretty significant. So I think that suggests that the Chinese perhaps may be relieved to have Imran Khan gone. Uh, they would never say this publicly, of course, and that they may think there could be opportunities for um, stepped-up partnership with, with Shabazz Sharif and his government. But, you know, final point on this, one big concern for China for several years has been the security of its of its nationals in Pakistan. You've got many Chinese workers in Pakistan, and there have been a number of cases in recent years where there have been terrorist attacks that have targeted Chinese workers, including one just a few weeks ago in Karachi, where several um, uh, workers at the Confucius Institute at the University of Karachi were killed in an attack by a female suicide bomber deployed by separatists, by Baluch separatists who have always opposed Chinese investments in Pakistan. So China is very concerned about that. So and the issue of its of the safety of its workers uh, has been a rare tension point in China-Pakistan relations. That was the case under Khan. It's certainly going to be the case under Sharif. So even though we could expect relations to perhaps be better between China and Pakistan in the Sharif era, you know, the issue of, of, of these terrorist threats to Chinese workers in Pakistan is going to linger. That's going to be a big, a bit, not a big, but it will be a notable challenge for, for the relationship moving forward. Uh, so lastly, how might this change in power in Pakistan impact uh, Pakistan's relationship with India going forward, if at all? Or could we sort of expect more or less the, the kind of status quo going forward? 
Yeah, so so both Sharif uh, soon after he took office and also Narendra Modi, the Indian prime minister, offered um, positive conciliatory comments. I mean, Modi essentially congratulated Sharif, uh, and then Sharif had had said that he you know he wanted to move forward in relations with India. Um, but here, quite frankly, with one exception, which I'll, which I'll get to in a second, I think that the issue here, the constraint here, is in. India. Um, I think that you know, the Delhi would see this new government as, as what's going to be a, a short-term one. I mean, there are elections scheduled for next summer, the summer of 2023, suggesting that it's just going to be over a year that this government will be in power. And you know, so would this Modi government want to take the bold political step of extending an olive branch to a government that's not going to be around for a while? I think that's a consideration. Secondly, uh, you know, as you know, the, the Modi government is a Hindu nationalist one and it has benefited politically from taking a hard line on Pakistan uh, in recent years. And soon after Modi was elected, he made a trip, a surprise trip to Pakistan to meet with Nawaz Sharif, the Shabazz's brother who was prime minister at the time. Very soon after that, there was a terrible terrorist attack, a uh, de- deadly terrorist attack in India, which India blames on Pakistani militants. That set back relations. So I just don't know if the political moment would be right for, for Modi to be willing to extend a, uh, a hand to, uh, to Sharif. But the exception, one positive sign we could see is in trade. Uh, India-Pakistan trade, there hasn't been much of it since a major military crisis between India and Pakistan several years ago. Uh, cross-border trade is something that could really be beneficial to Pakistan, especially at a moment when its economy is in, is in a freefall. Uh, Sharif's party, the Pakistan Muslim League, uh, one of its key support bases is the business community in the uh, pr- province of Punjab, which borders India. So I do think that there could be political incentives for Shabazz Sharif to try to push for some type of dialogue with India to allow there to be a reopening of at least some uh, cross-border trade with India. So that's one area, one area of low-hanging fruit that I think we could look to as, as, as a potential way to move the needle forward just a bit on India-Pakistan relations. But otherwise, I think that we'll see this relationship continue to be in this cold peace type status that it's been in for the last few years. Uh, so 2023 are the next elections. Do you expect Khan to put up a fight again, or do you think he's been sort of resigned to the political wilderness? What would you expect in, in 2023 with Khan and Sharif? Well, Khan is definitely not going to disappear quietly into the night. That would not be his brand of politics. That would not be his personality. Uh, he is going to uh, happily settle back into his role in the political opposition, uh, which, of course, a role he had played for, for many for many years. He has maintained this narrative that the current government is a bunch of traitors that colluded with the U.S. to oust him. Uh, he has uh, mobilized huge numbers of people, huge numbers of supporters in recent weeks to come out on the streets and protest the current government. He has vowed to uh, to lead a march on Islamabad later this month. Um, so he's not going away. He's going to keep the pressure up on the government. And he is very much going to be in the game when it comes to the next election, which it's scheduled for the summer of 2023. But who knows if it doesn't come sooner? Um, you know, if this current government struggles to to deal with the economic crisis, then it'll become more politically vulnerable because the Pakistani public will redirect its anger away from Imran Khan and his inability to fix the economy over to Shabazz uh, Sharif. So, yeah, Imran Khan is going to be continue to be a big player. Uh, the fact that his relationship with the military has suffered may make it a bit more difficult for him as we get to the next election. But certainly, I, I certainly think there's a very good chance that that he could be back 
uh, and could even be reelected um, and could become the prime minister again in 2023. A lot depends, of course, on what happens uh, over the next uh, eight to 10 to 12 months. Finally, I'd be remiss if I didn't ask you briefly about this just incredible heat wave that is gripping Pakistan and India at the moment. I mean, the temperatures, the reports I'm seeing are unprecedented for this time of year. Is there something you know that we perhaps in the West who are listening to this right now aren't appreciating or understanding? Or can you give us some sense of just how bad is this heat wave right now in the region? No, it definitely is a huge issue for several reasons. One is just the, the sheer intensity of the heat. I mean, we're talking about the highs in some areas of the region as high as 120 degrees. And this is a region where very few people have access to air conditioning. Um, so this has implications for public health. It also has implications for food security because some of the biggest agricultural breadbasket areas of, of Pakistan and, and India actually happen to be in some of the most uh, heat prone areas, including Northern India. So it's a mess. Secondly, I think what, what this heat wave does is it, it sort of sh- serves as a wake-up call for those that aren't aware of this, that South Asia and specifically India and Pakistan are some of the most climate change vulnerable countries in the world. And in that sense, what we're seeing now with this heat is exactly what climate specialists have long predicted for India and Pakistan. And unfortunately, I think it's uh, a sign of what's to come. I mean, there's going to be more, there's going to be more um, heat waves like this. And I think with that then, uh, amplifies is that, you know, climate change and its effects, I mean, these are inevitable, irreversible problems, uh, challenges for India and for Pakistan that I think in, in due course will dwarf the types of political challenges that you and I have been discussing earlier, even issues like terrorism and things like that. These are going to become the big issues and they're shared challenges, of course, uh, by Pakistan and India. So, you know, if you want to be optimistic, if there's one thing that we could look to that could perhaps bring these two rival nuclear states together, it would be their recognition that they're soon going to face existential threats posed by a shared uh, threat, that being climate change. I may be too idealistic there, but I'd like to hope that in the years ahead, maybe that's something that could provide the incentives to... um, to, to get these two countries to work more closely together, to work together to combat the, the, uh, the, the climate change effect. Uh, well, Michael, as always, thank you. This was great. Thank you. Always a pleasure to talk with you. All right. Thank you all for listening. Thank you to Michael Kuhlman, as always. And, and thank you to Michael for uh, humoring me with that last question uh, that was not part of the plan, but I figure I needed to ask him about that unprecedented heat wave. And I really appreciated his answer. All right. We'll see you next time. Thanks. Bye.